0: Hello and welcome to the Happy Baby Podcast. The Happy Baby Podcast is part of the Happy Baby Life experience. It also includes online courses and a Facebook community. The purpose of the Happy Baby Life is to offer support and information to parents of newborn babies and young children. Follow us on Instagram at the Happy Baby Life for regular updates. Remember to give us a like and do share the episode with family and friends who you think would be interested. In today's episode, Frank is talking to Erica Hartigan, who is a certified sleep consultant with Babogue Sleep Solutions and a mum of three. Erica's passion is to help parents understand their children's sleep and empower them to create settled sleep in their homes. In this episode, Erica explains how she really struggled with her first child's sleep and that this is why she is now a sleep consultant. During the conversation, Frank and Erica discuss the importance of good sleep for everyone in the home. They chat about naps, the overtired baby, sleep clocks, and so much more. Every child will have ups and downs when it comes to sleep, so this episode has something for every parent. You can find out more about Erica at babog.com. So, let's get started on your journey to great sleep.
1: Um, I'm delighted to be able to speak to Erica Hargaden this morning, who is a sleep consultant with the Bob Bogue Sleep Consultancy. And Erica, you're very, very welcome this morning to have a chat with us.
2: Thank you and, so much, Frank. Delighted to be here.
1: And could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became a sleep consultant and where where it all started for you?
2: Well, 13 years ago, I was a very, very sleep deprived mammy. I had had my, my first child quite shortly after getting married and actually thought I was very prepared for the sleep deprivation. I had read loads and I had listened to my friends who had gone ahead of me and I felt like I had a good handle on what was going to come. But I wasn't prepared for the actual impact that sleep deprivation had on me both physically and mentally and it was very chronic and very uh, debilitating I I wasn't a functioning person Mm. like I, I absolutely got on with it for the first four months but beyond that I was a shadow of myself but Quinn was What I would call um, kind of like a delicate baby, you know, he had a lot going on. He had reflux, which you would see so much of, Frank. Um, He was difficult to feed. He was difficult to handle. And I, as a new mum, hadn't a clue on how to support him and how to settle him and soothe him. And... Unfortunately, everywhere I turned for help with him, nobody could give me any answers and also nobody could give me any help for myself because I was drowning. Really, in the end, my mum stepped in and, uh, you know, I think Quinn was about eight months old at that stage and she stepped in. She had come down from Cavan, that's where I'm from originally, and she said what met her at the door was very grey and very lifeless. And that's not me at all. Like, I'm, I'm very... I I don't know I would call myself vibrant and quite confident and you know that wouldn't be me to not be functioning and she stayed with me for two weeks and did for me what I now do for families which is support them through the roller coaster which is child sleep it's just such a roller coaster from the start to the end and after that, I became very respectful of sleep, Frank. I understood, because of what had happened to me, how nice. important it is as a body process and how much we need to nurture it and respect it. And I read everything I could about about sleep generally. And also child sleep. But this was the time before iPhones. I didn't have an iPhone back then. didn't okay. have a smartphone. Imagine that. I used to be in the house and they would be dial up internet like there wasn't Wi-Fi. Oh, right. yeah. Yeah. And uh, I would be looking things up on the internet or my husband would bring something home that he'd seen in the paper. And I just, I consumed everything to do with child sleep that I could find. And when I went on to have my second child, Kate, who's now 11 and then Patrick, who will be seven in a couple of weeks time, I applied what I had learned on Quinn and I, I suppose, molded and supported two children who slept through the night from quite early. And I don't think unreasonably early because there was nothing forced about it. It was really about understanding and knowing what they were developmentally capable of and looking for the signs of that developmental capability and nurturing it we now have a house of very very settled sleepers thankfully and everybody loves sleep in this house there's no issue with going to bed thank god like it's it's a dream in in that respect but it isn't without its um ups and downs because children grow and mature and when I went on into my life um after the children kind of were born I was in in a job that I was in for 10 years and I absolutely adored but every time somebody would come into the office Frank and they'd maybe complain about their child not sleeping. Mm. I'd say, Come over here, come on, come over here and tell me what's going on. And they'd tell me, and I'd say, Would you try this and try that and try try the other? And they'd go home to their missus or their mister <clears throat> and they would come back maybe three weeks later for another meeting. And they'd All go, right. and say, That worked. What you said worked. And One of my best friends, and she's now my business partner, Janet, had beautiful twin boys. And she sat down in front of the desk um, at me one day. We were working together and the tears blobbed down her face. She was beyond exhausted. Whatever I had experienced on Quinn, she was experiencing double because she had twins. And uh, I helped her with their sleep. And her husband jokingly said, Erica, you should be doing this for a living. And the light bulb went off. God, could could I actually, because I loved it. Like it, it it would bring out another level in me. I would like, it was one of my friends who doesn't have children would say, Erica, it's like you blossom when you talk about child sleep. And I went off and I researched, you know, because like I, I'm, my background is event management, you know, and right. marketing and that side of things. I don't have a medical background And I went and I researched the most comprehensive course that I could do to become a sleep consultant. And that took me four months to do that research and a year to complete the course, plus working with families on a pro bono basis as part of that. I launched Babog in 2017 and within six months left my full time job and I never looked back.
1: My goodness. So a fast track, really, once you started to get going.
2: Yeah, because it was just such a passion. Like mm. I, I loved what I did in event management, Frank. And if you knew me, like I'm a very organized person and I love like a list and I love ticking it off. And I love the the whole thing of like the hard work and then the result of an event that goes well. And but working with families was just so Such satisfaction. I think because it resonated so deeply with me with what I had gone through and at the time I felt I was on my own and I had nowhere to turn. There wasn't anybody for me to reach out to and, and certainly maybe nobody that I could afford to reach out to. That was something at the time because it was a recession time in Ireland yes. uh, at that time when Quinn was born. And yeah so being able to show up for families and support them uh, and and to see them in a very different place and in particular the mothers in a very different place by the end of working together it was just amazing. I often do when I work with families one to one I do this little like get to know you phone call before we like decide that it's definitely you know right for both parties to take the one to one forward. And you know very often you know mums will break down and they will cry and and mm. I I remember that feeling, you know, and there's never any judgment. There's, you know, because I have heard so much of what people do to try and get a baby to go to sleep. And, you know, it's just as I think what we do is we provide a very safe place for mothers to say, I need support. I am struggling. And it's actually okay for you to be struggling. You know, you can't function on... 4 hours sleep a night, broken sleep a night at times.
1: No, sleep is important for everybody. It's so, so important. Yeah. In so many ways. Yeah, it is.
2: Yeah. It's like such a foundation. It is underestimated pillar of health. Really, it is.
1: That's great. Let's start with the big one. All right. And which is why is sleep so important, and what's the science behind sleep?
2: And- we could spend a whole a whole podcast just talking about that, Frank. Well, as I said just there, it is a fundamental pillar of health and and grossly underestimated. There has been this badge of honour that has been going on for decades about how well I only had five hours sleep last night, but yet I'm a really high functioning, you know, mm. adult, right? you're not you can't be there's definitely different levels of sleep for different people so for example in my house i am a very high need sleep uh, person yeah but my husband is not he's a he's a 6 hour sleep person i would be in 8 hours like every night i have to try and achieve that for me to be able to do what i need to do but really what happens while we sleep is that we rest and restore and all of the body processes that we need from a daytime functioning perspective get the chance to be rejuvenated while we sleep overnight. So like there's, you know, just the ones of like our muscles resting, memories being embedded, but then there's also physical body processes. Like there's particular ducts in the brain that drain off a protein and that only happens while you're sleeping. So if you're not getting quality sleep, that function is not getting the chance to happen. And it's the same with some of the liver and the kidney functions. So if you're putting the, the effort into your own sleep as an adult, and absolutely we have sleep ninjas that are going to you know break yeah. that from time to time, but from our body functioning process, if we are... Getting quality sleep then we're going a long way towards supporting our basic fundamental health going forward you're less likely to be overweight you're less likely to develop diabetes you're less likely to develop really chronic medical conditions if you are putting in the time the effort and the consistency with your sleep
1: right Right. And that's important that's so important really, isn't it?
2: Really, really important. And and, yeah. and specifically for children, you mm. know, the whole memory side of things with sleep, because that's their learning. The the napping with with children who are still napping, very often that's where their memories will be embedded during maybe those one, two or three naps a day that they're taking. Because every minute of every day for a baby, a toddler, or a child is a learning process. Yes, Everything, of course, it is. you know. Yeah. So if they're getting really good quality sleep uh, and good sleep opportunities, then those memories are going to be held. And then as well, when they go into the school going stage, if they're getting that great sleep opportunity overnight and they've got that sleep consolidation and that sleep maintenance, then they're going to be performing maybe in school at the level that they're capable of and less fretful and less maybe behavioral issues coming out of it for children if they're getting those good quality sleeps.
1: So the consequences really of poor sleep, say in a baby or a, a toddler or a child or some of the things you've just described, really, if they're not getting good quality sleep.
2: Yeah, like I would always hear from families that when we've gone through the process of one-to-one or maybe somebody who's used one of our sleep series courses, that their baby is happier, that they're maybe less cranky, less grouchy, that maybe they will... um, they will catch less colds, particularly with toddlers, I would hear that. Because very often I work with families and they've had back-to-back illness maybe for months prior, and then we work on sleep and then there's maybe no illness for three or four months. So you're, you're more robust and you're less likely maybe to pick up these illnesses, but also in yourself, you know, your quality of life, your thinking, your ability to deal with things, even for small children and toddlers, Yes,
1: you know, when it comes to a newborn baby, then the parents don't really expect them to sleep all night, really, because they know that they're going to be up and feeding and those patterns will develop as the baby is is getting older. At what age should they expect a baby to begin to sleep through the night? Because I'm always asked that question when parents bring their baby to see me.
2: Um, I think they should have no expectations as okay. to whether when their child would sleep through the night, Frank, because it is very, very different for every single baby. And I hope that anybody listening to this will take some um, comfort from that because there is a lot of pressure out there and so much messaging mm-hmm. from all angles of when these things should be happening, you know, when your baby should walk, when your baby should go, yes. when your baby should sleep through the night. And it's so different. And as a mother of three children, it happened all, all of those things happen so differently for me. But what I will say is, when you see those first social smiles from a baby between six and eight weeks, There is actually a level of sleep development happening behind that. That's a developmental milestone. So like, you know, they're often referred to with today's parents as leaps. So that is a progression in your child. They're taking that development forward. And behind that is the production of, well, in it is the production of two crucial hormones when it comes to sleep, cortisol and melatonin. They are starting to be formed and produced and released at that time. And between six and eight weeks is when I feel parents can start to apply loose and flexible routine to their child's sleeping routine. Like so their daytime sleep patterns in order to support what happens in the overnight. But again, keep your expectations low. And I think what maybe we sometimes overlook is that if you get to beyond six months and baby is still waking every two hours overnight, then potentially there's a sleep challenge going on rather than it being developmental, that they're not capable of doing it yet. And that's something that a sleep consultant can maybe help you to figure out by taking an overarching look at the entire sleep picture, you know, at looking at everything to help you figure out. I had that question from a parent yesterday on Instagram. They were like, you know, if I came to work with you, would you make me change the nap because we can't change the nap? I'm like, no, it could be anything that I might ask you to adjust because, but I need to look at everything before I could tell you that. There's so many factors that would contribute in, but for new parents coming back to it, six to eight weeks is when you can start to work on loose routine.
1: Loose routine. Yeah, Yeah, that's very good advice. And you mentioned the word naps there and the napping principle. I'm always talking to parents as well about how important that is the daytime naps for good night sleep patterns. Can you explain why this is the case?
2: Uh, It goes back to that lovely hormone that I mentioned, cortisol. So, cortisol is the fight or flight hormone, which people will maybe understand, and it builds in our bodies as the day progresses, it's not necessarily that we have gotten a fright or that we feel under pressure or that we feel anxious or none of those things necessarily create cortisol. Just our daily living builds cortisol in our body. When we get to the end of the day, cortisol actually plays a role in sleep pressure and us being tired. But if it's too high in the body, then it actually will have a little argument with melatonin, the sleepy hormone that helps us to go to sleep. They fight with each other. They don't like each other. So if a child maybe is not um, getting enough sleep opportunity during the day, by the time they get to maybe a 7 or an 8 p.m. bedtime, that cortisol level will be very high in their body. And therefore, they will find it harder to go to sleep at bedtime but also harder to maintain their sleep. So once the sleep cycles are kind of formed in and around four months, that's when we can see a baby that was doing maybe longer consolidated sleep stretches overnight start to wake every two to four hours because that's what a nighttime sleep cycle generally looks like. And if the cortisol levels are high, they're more likely to be drawn out of sleep and not maintain sleep. But equally, they're more susceptible to early rising. So they're more susceptible to being awake and ready to start their day at 5 a.m. Because that's a really light sleep phase. That's where melatonin really drops off in the body. And if cortisol is high, then it just pushes it right out. So okay. achieving or trying to achieve, because I can tell you, napping is one of I'm going to go back to like basic terms here. One of the greatest head wrecks of parenting of all time, uh, and because we've got too high expectations of our, our babies. A small baby uh, under four months and maybe up until six months is probably not capable of achieving any longer than 45 minute naps at a time. That is developmental. That is down to like the body processes they're not able to hold the sleep cycle for any longer than that. That development around the knitting up and the linking of sleep cycles doesn't occur or doesn't start until after four months and very often doesn't fully mature until after seven months. So I try and encourage parents to keep their expectations low around napping But understand their child's wake period, so how long comfortably they're able to stay awake between sleeps and offer sleep opportunity at each of those wake period ends so that you're giving the chance for rest at regular intervals during the day so that you are less likely to experience these cortisol challenges overnight.
1: Yeah, that's very important. And I mean, that links in very well then with sort of when your baby is overtired, yes? Yes. So can you talk to me about why this affects sleep? and what parents can do to help the overtired baby yeah you've mentioned the cortisol is it related to that
2: yes it, it absolutely is that's what overtiredness is it's where they've gone beyond what their body can cope with in terms of cortisol levels but I think there's a lot of anxiety around overtiredness for new parents now loads of messaging yes. out there about it and I actually put out a reel yesterday about about overtiredness it is a big challenge for parents and Where you've got small baby, like maybe newborn, you have to do everything as a parent to support them in their sleep. Like whatever you need to do, sling, buggy, holding, feeding, whatever you need to do with a small child to help them get to sleep, you've got to do. And maybe from four months, you can start to loosely work on, you know, more routine and also maybe start looking at trialing and error around, you know, self-settling But if you've got an overtired child, you have to support them. You've got to do that maybe extra mile in terms of getting them more settled, more calm, you know, whatever you need to do, Frank, holding them, maybe a bit of sling time. Body to body is so Mm -hmm. important from baby and for for parent. So put in whatever you need to do to get them settled and then support them going into their sleep phase. And if you've had one or two overtired days, it's not going to undo absolutely everything that you maybe have worked on in terms of sleep. So take it on the chin. You know, children's sleep evolves and their napping changes. And sometimes, you know, as parents, we might recognize we need to make an adjustment. Baby gets overtired. You know, don't overthink it. Do what you need to do to get them to go to sleep. The next nap is a new nap. The following day is a new day. Don't let it get in on you. you, you they're not robots. They don't come with manuals, yes. unfortunately. <laughs> you know, so we we have to we have to support them. That's our role as parents. And if that means, you know, helping them to get to sleep, then that's what we need to do.
1: No and that's a very good point because very often parents will say to me well he did very well two nights ago and or two days ago he was in this routine but it completely changed yesterday. Yeah. And that's that's exactly what you're saying is that you've to support them because there is such a variability.
2: Huge. And like it can come overnight Frank. Like you could go with a toddler who is napping happily happily for an hour and a half in the middle of the day and the following day he will literally like a light switch just stop doing it Mm. and never and never nap during the day again those those developmental changes some of them come subtly and over time others it is like a light switch they just go on and that's it your old routine is gone and done and you have to move forward with the child
1: Yeah. yeah yeah another thing is about you know the way you've described napping to us like napping on the go during school collections. If you've other kids, do you just work with that?
2: Oh, I've been there and done that. Yeah, of course. T-shirt, Frank. <laughs> I really have. Yeah. Um,
1: in I, other words, does it matter where you nap?
2: It 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 does and it doesn't. Right. So darkness is key for quality sleep because melatonin, that sleepy hormone, likes darkness, mm. and it does its best work in darkness. So sleep tends to be more consolidated, and more restorative in dark environments, right? And you're more likely to do longer naps, longer spells of sleep in dark environments. So, like, it's not a fluke that there's an entire industry around curtains and blinds. Like, it's, it, you know, it's because we, our bodies need this darkness. Yes. But that said, circumstances often override that. So, like, when I had uh, Kate after having Patrick, She had to do her first nap of the day on the go every day because I was walking up to play school with Quinn. That was just a fact. That's what had to be done. But what I did was I invested in a blackout solution for my buggy so that she could nap in the dark. And then when we got back to the house, I'd wheel her into the living room and she'd finish her nap there. But at weekends, we didn't have that circumstance to play around. So she napped in the cot at weekends. So I think we can overthink it and go, no, they'll only ever nap in the buggy if I do that. Not necessarily. You can have a buggy napper and you can have a car napper and you can have a cot napper. It's just around getting consistent with what sleep opportunities and sleep circumstances you're offering the child. Like, I would definitely Blackout Solution for the buggy, I think is a big one for parents and will really help with on-the-go napping.
1: That's a great Uh, tip.
2: I I love them. Like, I think I gave away my one. I don't obviously need them anymore, but I gave it away, but it was a really, it was a good one and I had it for years. And the other one that uh, springs to mind, Frank, is a travel sleeping bag. So once your child is old enough to go into a sleeping bag solution from a sleep perspective, there's actually travel ones that allow you to have the three-point harness go right. through it. And that way you can do transfer. So if you from early on, if you're get practicing the transfer, which which definitely instills anxiety in so many parents, yeah. so if you're yeah. if you're getting back to the house, you get everybody else into the house, get people sorted, go back out to the car, and then have the room ready. So like curtains pulled, everything ready, darkness down and take baby out of their car seat and straight into the cot, that can be a good way of, you might have to start your nap in the car on the way to do a drop-off or a pick-up, but end it in the cot. And children are very, very resilient. They're very, you know, they get used to things. Whatever is their norm, they get used to it. So if you're practicing those things on a regular basis, that's what will become the baby's norm. And they they'll, they will just go with it. That's certainly what happened to me. Quinn did not do that, but Kate and Patrick both did. And I've seen that with clients that have gone on to have the second and the third child, potentially their, their second and their third will sleep in, in multiple locations because right. they've had to due to circumstance.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's good advice as well, because it is. You know, you're, you've older kids, you're doing the drop-offs and it's important that have to sometimes sleep on the go. Yeah, yeah
2: and I is. think take the anxiety out of it for yourself. It yeah. Like just, it is circumstance. There's nothing you can do to change it. You've got to fulfil this need for your older child. So go with it.
1: Tell me a little bit. I was looking at your Instagram page recently and you spoke about one of the posts was about a sleep clock. Yeah. So what's that about?
2: Um, I I have a a love, well, a love-hate, it's not a love-hate relationship, but I feel that sleep clocks are marketed a little bit too early to parents, unfortunately, Frank. So a sleep clock or, or toddler clock can be a really, really helpful product to help a child to learn to stay in bed. So, you know, with early risers, maybe you can use this device to help them adjust to uh, getting out of bed later, or or adjust their bodies to getting out of bed later, I've used them. Don't get me wrong, I've used them, and I particularly with my youngest guy because he is like his daddy, slightly lower sleep needs. I've used it to help him kind of get closer to seven o'clock in terms of starting his day. He lo- he loves we well, used to love getting out of bed at six. Used to love it. right. So I, but unfortunately. A lot of parents um, will use these devices from from age two, and the child, the toddler, cognitively cannot understand or get to grips with this device. They they don't they aren't able to process the rule aspect of it, and therefore it doesn't work. And you know, parents will get frustrated with the situation and feel that there's nothing that can be done in terms of you know maybe trying to work on a sleep challenge. I find with these clocks that from age three onwards is when they are most useful because there's a huge difference between the understanding that a two-year-old child will have and what a three-year-old child will have. That 12 months is massive, even between two and a half and three. So like a lot of these devices would be used in conjunction with the transition to the big bed or the toddler bed from a cot. And I would generally advise parents that avoid that transition until as close to three as possible, because your child will understand the lack of boundaries that a bed brings and the rules around it better from three onwards than from two onwards. So if you maybe, and and often people have to transfer to a, a, a toddler bed or a bed earlier from a safety perspective if they have a cot jumper or you know whatever but i think if you've got another baby on the way and you want the cot for the baby i I would be borrowing a cot if you've got a child that's happy in their cot a toddler happy in their cot leave them in their cot as far as you possibly can and and then you may not need one of these devices but i find them very useful so for example with a child of like maybe three four five six um you could use this device if they're early rising to help them adjust. So, for example, if they're regularly starting their day at 5 a.m., explain to them that they can't get out of bed until the clock turns a certain color, okay? That's generally how they... There's loads of versions of these on the market, and that's generally the the way that they work. So I did this with my Patrick uh, last year. He was getting up, like, sometimes before 6. So I kind of set the the marker of, like, he can't get out of bed before 6. So his general was 5.45, I was also putting him to bed a little bit earlier because he was a bit overtired, you know, from starting school and it had gone from lockdown child from a school perspective into going to school and he was tired. So putting to bed earlier was helping, but also... When 5.45 came, his clock wasn't showing him that he could get out of bed because I had set it for 15 minutes later, which was 6. And lo and behold, his body naturally adjusted to waking up at 6 rather than 5.45. So when that started to occur, I set it then for 6.15. And then his body started to naturally adjust to 6.15. So some of the issues with these things is that parents go from... Yeah, a child waking at five to wanting them to wake at seven, it's too much of a jump. Set it incrementally to allow the child's body time to adjust over time. Like it will probably take two weeks, Frank, but sure, you'll get there eventually.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and,
2: And that will see the child adjust more naturally and therefore more likely to actually hold the change. And that's certainly what I've experienced both from a client perspective and as a mum, because Patrick, I only used that clock that we have. We still have it upstairs, and um, we don't use it anymore. I only used it for a month, right? And he's now gone. He's now waking at seven, as opposed to waking like at, uh, before six. So That's when you good. use them, when you use them like that, I think that you'll have greater success.
1: Yeah, but obviously the age of the child is the important factor there, isn't it?
2: Yeah, that and-
1: cognitive ability to understand what the clock is about.
2: Definitely. And the only thing that a parent takes from this section of our chat is keep your child in a cot for as long as you possibly can. I, I've i seen in my own family, like Patrick was three and a half before we put him into a toddler bed. Right. And that was only because he was getting a bit big for the cot. Yeah. He was happily yeah. sleeping in the cot. So don't rush that change because the longer you leave it, the more likely that the transition to the you know, the non-contained solution of a bed versus a cot will be more successful.
1: I suppose then talking about that and, and leading on and moving on from that, what's your view and how do you create a good sleep routine? Like what's involved for that nighttime sleep routine for for the right across the age groups, really?
2: Like like a bedtime routine, frankly? From- yeah. Yeah, I, I I love this. I'm all about keeping it simple. I'm really, really not into um, any, any kind of, I suppose, you know the way I sometimes I think about sleep routines and like their new fandangles, you're like trying, you're throwing the kitchen sink at it. So mm. in my opinion, the wind down to bedtime starts, honestly, about two hours prior to going to bed. Now don't, don't kill me, please, listeners, Perfect. stay in that. But Really in those couple of hours, it's the things that regularly happen prior to bedtime that are the cues to your child that the bedtime is coming. And those particular things in turn give the body the cue to increase its melatonin production to get you ready. So, for example, with with a child maybe that's on solids and has started their solids journey, the first step in that is that, that they might have their tea time meal or their dinner time meal at 5pm. So that's one step, right? And then the next step is because let's face it, babies and toddlers get absolutely destroyed when they're eating, right? Whether they're, you know, baby led weaning or spoon fed, whatever, they get destroyed. Then after that, maybe they'll have a bath. So that's another little stepping stone in terms of giving the body the indication that bedtime is coming. And then after that, they might have their last milk feed of the day. And I recommend that that's in a brightly lit living space not associated with sleep and at least 45 minutes prior to bedtime. So not in their bedroom, not right before bedtime. It's too much food or too much consumption prior to bedtime, but also it's less likely to lead into feeding to sleep, which can cause other issues in the overnight perspective and see baby wake more for feeds in order to maintain their sleep so that's that's one thing the next is turn off your screens no screens the those backlit blue lit devices televisions phones they are all um sleep interrupters and can it can can make it hard for melatonin again that the hormone that we need to help us to get to sleep for it to do its its work it'll impede the the hormone so then maybe about 20 minutes prior to bedtime. So if bedtime's seven, maybe at half seven, maybe twenty to seven, head to the baby sleep environment and dim down the lights, pull the curtains, pull down the blinds, go to lamp light rather than pelmet, you know, roof light. Okay. And change the nappy and start to kind of maybe take the interaction. to a calmer place. If you could see me now, Frank, like I'm I'm using my hands. I'm, right. I'm a fancy speaker, but use using my hands in a calm way. You're looking at calming the situation. And I love books. I'm a big believer in books as part of bedtime routines. Pull your child onto their knee, onto your knee, no matter what age they are. A child only wants to be with you. They want to sit on you, sit beside you, and that time where you maybe read one to two age appropriate books be those feely books for babies or touchy books or shiny books or you know with my my patrick we do a couple of pages of whatever book he's reading for school but that time they adore it and it instills that love of reading from a very very early age and then what you're looking to do is maybe have after the book another little moment of calm so if it's a baby maybe take them up into your arms You're looking to have them ready for sleep, but not falling asleep in your arms and then into their sleep environment at the time that's appropriate for them. And then from there, from maybe four to six months onwards, that they'll fall asleep independently rather than you doing it for them and maybe helping them on that transition from being very dependent on mummy and daddy to being more independent from a sleep perspective. Now, lots of parents will be listening to this, going, "I have a, I have a, fourteen month old who doesn't fall asleep independently." So that's me out the window. No, it's not. You can help your child to sleep independently from any age range. It, there's no lost causes when it comes to sleep, and th- those simple steps, Frank, are for me easy peasy because been out for a meal in the evening time with your children, that's the meal box tint. You don't need to have a bath every night. It's not essential. Do you know, it's it's really that kind of 20 to 30 minutes prior to bedtime that it's just a little bit of wind down time and a little bit of time with you that it helps to give them the cues that bedtime is coming.
1: Yeah, it is about giving them the cues is the key thing really, isn't it? So yeah. that you've created that routine. And yeah. they know what's coming next, really. If, even yeah. the
2: putting on of the sleeping bag is yeah. a cue. Even the handing them of the soother can be a cue. The, the, if they have a particular, you know, lovey, like a blanket yeah. or a bunny or a teddy or something, that's a cue. All of these things are cues. But if you if you forget an element, right, that probably isn't the reason why your child didn't sleep through the night that night. Do you know? So. Yeah. We, we can get a bit obsessive about things being done in a very particular way. I know I was when I when I sorted out Quinn's sleep, I became quite obsessive about that. And I had to I had to work on becoming more relaxed about it. At the end of the day, the process of sleep w- will still occur whether you've given them a bath or not.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know? absolutely. And in in that point there, you just mentioned the soother, giving the baby the soother to settle them, or the toddler. What's your opinion on soothers, and do they do they help sleep or do they disturb sleep?
2: They can do both, Frank. They can do both. I I don't have like a a one size fits all um, opinion on anything really to do with working on a child's sleep, and the the soother is is included in that. I think soothers can be extremely helpful when it comes to um, helping a child to become more independent with their sleep but if you have a child that is waking every two hours for soother replugs then that's possibly um, a disruptor rather than a helper so if you have a child that's going to sleep with the soother and maintaining their sleep all night then that ain't broke so don't fix it there's nothing to change there you know, happy days, your child's sleeping great. But if you have a child that has a soother and it needs to be continuously re-plugged all the time, then there may be overly dependent on the soother in order to initiate and maintain their sleep. And that's where working on sleep without the soother could be worth investigating. So for example, I've just finished up recently working with a family of a 14-month-old. Now, he ha- was waking, honestly, like every hour overnight for the soother. Now, there was a nap imbalance going on as well, Frank, which we adjusted and changed. And we saw an immediate change in his sleep. He went from waking every hour to waking once overnight for a soother replug. And the parents are like, "We're, we're yes, we're so happy we're done here. Thanks so much, Erica. You know, good luck. Because their family sleep goal was met. Their child yes. still has a soother. He's only waking once overnight and they are thrilled. You know, so it sometimes isn't the soother that's the issue. It could be something else. So that's why looking at the whole sleep picture is important before you make the decision that you're going to drop the soother. That adjustment in a nap, like honestly, within two days, made a huge difference for that 14-month-old.
1: So it's not just so that you have to look at the whole passion really of sleep
2: yeah, by yeah. making
1: some other adjustments that can, that's the yeah. detail that can make the difference. Yeah,
2: I would often give parents the advice of just take a little look at everything else before you knee jerk a big change like that, because yes. you could decide you're going to take away the soother and get three days into it and the child's still waking every hour, then it's something else that's the issue. It's not the soother. It's something else in the sleep picture that needs to be changed.
1: When you work with parents to help their sleeping patterns, do you look for physical issues? Because this is something that very often parents will bring their their children to see me so you mentioned Quinn had reflux so that's a physical issue that's impacting on sleep or digestive issues or even respiratory issues you know the kid who constantly has a blocked nose or has a history of air issues do you incorporate that
2: yeah yes I do so when I um, work with families one-to-one we we do this initial phone call and it's like a discovery call it's not a consultation it's a chat it's like And I will ask questions to try and maybe weed those things out if they are potential issues. So I'll ask about, you know, um, mouth breathing. I'll ask about snoring. I'll ask about, I always, I ask every client about reflux because it is such a huge um, issue for parents. You know, I'll ask about prematurity. I'll ask about any other known medical conditions. And I've often said to clients, I would really prefer if you went back to your GP or maybe consulted with a pediatrician in relation to these things prior to coming to work with somebody like me, because it could be something else more physical or medical that I'm not qualified to deal with, Frank, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't touch Uh, You know, so I have had emails back from clients like that who were like, you know, actually thanking and saying we actually have in an older child, we have enlarged adenoids and we actually need to get that removed and we need to do um, grommets. And the child's sleep was perfect after they did that.
1: Yeah. So
2: it wasn't necessarily a sleep challenge. It was actually something physical that was um, impeding the the breathing side of things that therefore was waking the child. So, yeah, all the time we we will look for things like that. And even in the sleep series, which is the online course that, that we have, we provide um, a support page to that that I log into on a daily basis to provide support. I will ask about those things.
1: Very good. You know,
2: because yeah. whether you come to work with us one to one or you choose to use the sleep series, at the end of the day, for me, it's all about that support and community and you're not feeling alone and having access to, an expert who can guide you and you could be throwing the kitchen sink at your child via one of our sleep series courses but if they have an underlying condition that needs treatment the sleep series isn't going to solve it they need to go and be seen by an expert in that respect
1: yeah no that's very good advice really at what point then would you suggest parents look for help around sleep from somebody like yourself as a sleep consultant
2: so i Look at with with the sleep series, you can um, use those from from birth, and really they're about education for us. Those sleep courses are about, you know, forearmed as forewarned. The more knowledge you have, therefore, the you'll be able to maybe help and mold and support right from very early. Yeah, um, and then you'll also have the support of the community side of things on on the support the support page. When it comes to, I think, working with a sleep consultant one-to-one, for me, that's about solving a sleep challenge and working on it in, in an intensive way because you're maybe only working with a sleep consultant for maybe a two- to four-week period. I really feel a baby needs to be six months old because developmentally, they're in a place where they are capable of achieving you know, specific sleep milestones. I also think that you need to be maybe experiencing particular sleep challenges for a four to six week period before you can say that it's a sleep challenge and that it's not teething or it's not something else that's contributing to what you're experiencing so really one-to-one I think from six months on and if it's kind of maybe a sleep course for a specific age range from from newborn you can do that but you've got to keep your expectations in not in a low place, but in in a in a balanced place around what you'll yeah. achieve via those things. With a newborn sleep course, your child's not going to sleep through the night. Yeah, just keep it capable. realistic, I guess. Yeah, keep it realistic. Yeah. They're not capable of it. So it's not gonna happen.
1: Yeah, no, that's 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 very important. I think the the, the patterns, as you said, in very young babies, they develop over time, really. And I think that's a good message that they do develop over time.
2: Yeah, between newborn and three years of age, your child will go through major, major changes. Uh, And that is what contributes to the sleep roller coaster that we experience. Every single progression is probably going to be a sleep regression. And really those regressions signal that we need to make changes around our child's sleep. So, for example, walking is generally linked to the transition to one nap a day. You know, the dropping down from three naps to two is generally linked to seeing your child starting to roll or sit up. So, with every single, you know, progression, you'll see a change that needs to be made in your child's sleep and it's not really until 3 that that starts to kind of level out a little bit when napping right. kind of drops off and that And you can maybe get into a pattern that's very settled around your child's sleep for a longer period of time.
1: If you were to give us, say, your top three tips to help a baby to sleep now or to help a toddler, what would they be?
2: Oh, I love this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Top three tips. I have so many now. I'm thinking about Top this. <laughs> Top, yeah, yeah. Could you write a book, Erica? Um so start your day at 7 a.m. every day, Frank. And parents hate me for saying that, but okay that gives you a stepping stone from which you can plan your day. So it mightn't be seven. I I say seven a.m., but it could be six AM because six AM is a very um respectable time for a child to start their day. We don't like it. I'm I i do not like six a.m. Mm. personally unless I'm getting up to go for a run or or do yoga or something for myself, but start your day at a regular time. And that will give you the stepping stones on which to see when the next sleep is due and when the next feed is due. And linking in with that, particularly with small um, babies, avoid allowing them to sleep through feeds because they will seek that nutrition at another point. They are sleeping feeding machines when they're small and they need every ounce of nutrition to help them grow and develop and their bodies are designed to seek it. So if you if you see a baby sleep through a feed during the day, they will look for that nutrition to be met at night. So by by doing that regular feeds during the day, they're less likely to wake for more feeding overnight. Now that takes time to balance out, but yes. I think that's a really, really key one. And the third one would be get to grips with what, you know, is suitable for your child's sleep needs at each stage. What what are the messages out there? Like there's so much free content out there now in terms of child sleep. Like, you know, everyone has Instagrams and blogs full of usable content Take the time. Well, I I also say find somebody who resonates with you. So like find a sleep consultant that you kind of like and you feel that you like them, okay? You don't need to work with them. Go onto their Facebook pages or their Instagram and do do a deep dive. Try and understand like roughly what a four-month-old might need from a sleep routine, roughly. And then, you know, use those guides to try and figure out what your child uh, needs. If you have a basic understanding, you're going a long way towards supporting your child's sleep needs.
1: Yeah, they're great. They're very, very good. And they're practical things that parents can do really as well.
2: Yeah. Like, you know, I suppose I, I, always, I've. if you could see my, behind me here in my office at home, like there's just books and books and books. Uh, I read everything. I You don't need to do that now. Yeah. You, you know, you can do a Google search and you'll get lots of different opinions about how things are done. Like, you know, pay, doctors differ, sleep consultants yeah. differ too, but really there is a basic evidence-based, you know, system around sleep. There is scientific facts there. And if you have an understanding of what each stage brings then you, you, you're going to get there. But yes. also maybe the fourth one is be kind to yourself. Like they don't come with manuals. We are not like programmed to know all this information. It's not there in the back of our head and some door that gets unlatched as soon as we give birth. It's not there. So this is a learning process. It's a learning process for you. You are heading into a new chapter in your life with each baby and you need to get to grips with this little human that's landed in your lap. So be kind to yourself, ask for help, lean in and do. We were terrible as Irish people as be, being embarrassed to ask for help. Yes. It's seen as a weakness that goes way back, I think, beyond yeah. our generation. But ask for help. I wish I had have asked for more help at the time when I was struggling.
1: And that's a really good piece of advice for parents of children who are struggling with sleep and what comes across, Eric, is what you're trying to do is you're trying to support the child, obviously, to build the sleep routine. But you're also providing very valuable support to these parents. And I think that's what they need at those particular moments.
2: Yeah. Like when when I had the, I suppose, light bulb moment for the sleep series, I was at a point with Babogue where I was working with families one to one. But I was completely maxed out, Frank. Like I, I right. couldn't take on any more families. and you know, then it also didn't sit well with me that like working with a sleep consultant one-to-one is expensive because it's very, very time heavy. And that didn't sit well with me. That like alienated a whole population of people that maybe couldn't do that. So for me, making sure that as many families as possible can understand and support sleep in their households is honestly the goal. That is the goal for us be that via the sleep series courses or one-to-one supporting and helping families with their sleep in whatever means is key. And the support bit, that's the bit for me that is the gold because we can deliver content out there that falls between two lines, but you could have a child that's slightly outside that line, Frank, there's always an outlier always. So if you've got a place that's safe where you can go and ask a question and that question could be the difference between waking three times a night and going down to one wake at night, sure, isn't that amazing? Do you know, so that when we designed the sleep series, I was adamant, no, they have to be supported. Like they have to have a place where they can go and ask questions because that's that's key. Otherwise, sure, like you're lost, like...
1: (laughs) You, you are? Know, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Especially with sleep. You've just and lost.
1: The, and the thing is that by being part of your service, you create this community so that you yeah. can have that interaction as well.
2: Yeah, like we've lovely daddies on the community. We do, yeah. I say that we do, but we have amazing women. And when women support women, yeah, fabulous things happen. Like, honestly, there's, you know, some names that jump into my head, which obviously I'll not say, but there's just some unbelievable girls there who you know, jump on every day with me and they're using the benefit of their experience. They could be on their second or their third child and they are giving the, you know, just their knowledge. And it's not like, it's not like, oh, you should be doing this. Well, this is what we did and this is what worked for us. What do you think about that? And it's just a bit of a different perspective, Yeah, you know, and it's, it's, um, I can see that people have formed relationships on the group, and Very good. you know, which is is glorious. Like that's
1: brilliant. Yeah, yeah. That's you know, brilliant. They're... See. And
2: they're all over the world, Frank. Like there's there's girls yeah. in Australia, there's girls in the UK, and uh, predominantly Irish. Yes, but they're they're all over the world, and um, they're using our our sleep courses to help them sleep well, which is like you know major happy bum dances on this side. It's fabulous. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. Well, look, Erica, um, I think we'll finish up there. But thank you so much for giving us your time this morning. It's It's been superb, really, and fantastic practical advice for parents. We'll put up your details of where they can contact you. We'll touch base again in the future for certain.
2: Thank you so much, Frank. Really appreciate the opportunity. I loved the conversation.
0: Thanks to Erica for that wonderful insight into the importance of sleep and how parents can influence their children's sleep in very practical ways. If you would like more information about Erica and the work she does, you can find her at babogue.com and of course on Instagram at babogue underscore sleep. You have been listening to The Happy Baby Podcast.